Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you so much for having me here today. Hi, friends. I have friends in the audience and other people that I don't know. So I'm very happy you guys are here. And, uh, well, thank you so much to Skylights for inviting me. When I first arrived in Los Angeles, this was the first independent bookstore that I, that I was able to, to travel around. And I wanted to move to Los Feliz just to <laughs> have this as my uh, neighborhood uh, bookstore. And um, also, it's to me special to be here uh, today in these times, in this week, <laughs> because we are uh, a few days away from our midterm election, which, you know, is going to be uh, important. M Mother Jones uh, has in its cover uh, the most important election in the U.S. I don't know if this is the most important, but certainly we have to pay attention on what are we doing um, as a country in the next uh, weeks. And also, I don't know if, okay, and also, I don't know, oh, okay, yeah, that's better. <laughs> and also, uh, I don't know if you have heard um, what's happening right now. Uh, we are speaking in the southern border of Mexico, a group of uh, migrants, a caravan of migrants trying to um, cross the border from Guatemala to Mexico, uh, aiming some of them to cross Mexico and come to the U.S. So uh, it's been um, a couple of days full of images of people who are fleeing their countries to um, arrive in another place, and people from those places saying, we don't want you here. And that happens if you are in Guatemala and people are coming from Honduras, or in you are in Mexico and people are coming from Guatemala, or in, if you are in the U.S. and people are coming from Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico. But the thing um, is that this is happening also. If you go to Europe and you see people coming from Africa or, or from um, the Eastern Europe countries that have conflict right now, and this is happening also if you go to South America and you will see uh, people from Haiti traveling, uh, aiming to stay in Chile. I mean, this is something that is happening around the world. And I feel that for some reason, uh, we, we have thought for a very long time that only the U.S. has this kind of problem. I'm going to make a parenthesis here. We don't even ask ourselves if, if this is a problem or not. We directly label that as a problem. We have to fix the immigration problem. Well, that's a bad start. If we don't start seeing uh, immigration as an opportunity instead of a problem, I don't think we're going to do uh, things right. So uh, for all of this, I, I'm very happy to have this book published at this moment. I started working on it in 2013, right after I uh, finished my first book, Dreamers, I was super tired. I didn't want to know anything about writing a book. And then um, a couple of weeks before Dreamers was published, uh, a friend of mine came to my house and told me, I have the story for your next book. And I was like, ha, 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 that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, that happened. <laughs> um, the, the next month, I traveled with him to... Um, El Paso, El, El Paso, who is a city in, who has a border with Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, and that region of El Paso Juarez has been um, interesting for people who follow immigration and by, by national and by cultural relations for a very long time. Long time. It was the, the first point where the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. in the modern times started. That was the point where, where, where um, the train crossed. That was the point where merchandise crossed. Uh, so it's been a long um, history on that area about people coming and going from and to the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, in recent years, violence uh, has, has been very strong 
uh, in Mexico and especially in that area of uh, El Paso Juarez for many reasons, but the main is that that's the corridor where um, drug dealers and other, other criminal groups uh, operate. So, uh, well, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of crime, and there's a lot of complicity from the government in Mexico. When I went there, I realized that there were a lot of stories untold. My colleagues in Mexico, I'm from Mexico City, and I worked there as a journalist for almost 10 years, and I still have many friends who are journalists there as well. And uh, my colleagues in Mexico usually cover immigration this way. Uh, right now, there's a group of people from Honduras trying to get into Mexico, some already did. Then they, they're gonna cross the country, so people are gonna follow those stories, journalists are gonna follow those stories. I'm pretty sure that you have uh, heard about the beast, this train that comes uh, from Central America, crossing through Mexico uh, to, to finish in the border with the US. Well, we have seen and hear an imaginal number of uh, reports about the beast and how the people get in the train and how people get off the train and how people is feeding the train, but only 18% of people coming from Central America travels in that, in that train. So uh, I see that journalists tend to follow the stories that are more spectacular, that are more um, visually interesting, and where you can um, easily create an image like the beast that will be uh, easy to, to sell. Uh, after that, if the person arrives next to the US border or if someone in Mexico also arrives next to the US border, they cover their story, and their story has uh, three possible endings. The person was detained and deported. The person uh, was killed or led, and the person arrived safely. But that's the end. In the three cases, that's the end of the story. In the case of those who arrived safely and start living in the US, we don't see a follow-up nor from people in Mexico, not from journalists in the US. We don't know, some journalists do that. Here's Pilar Marrero, many of you know her, and she's one of those that follow those stories after people arrives here. And I learned very much about uh, it following Pilar. But uh, most of the journalism that we see here has something to do with the train, with the wall, with the river, uh, with someone hidden in the trunk of a car, and that's it, that's what we know. If the person is not detained, if the person is not killed, what happened to them? What happened the next day, the very next day? Where did they sleep? Where did they eat? Did they have money? Did they speak the language? Did they have children? What happens one month later? Were they, were they able to get a job, to get a house? If they don't have documents, how are they working? Are they getting paid? What happens if they got sick? One year later, what happens to those migrants? And you know, they're among us. Their children are going to school with our children, and we do not think about them. So my way to realize that was to meet um, several families in El Paso who had to flee uh, the conflict zone in Ciudad Juarez because they were threatened, because they had relatives killed, or uh, because they directly were attacked and they just had to, to flee with the clothes on their back and nothing else. And those people were living there for one, two, three, four months, one year, even two years, and no one would notice that these people were there and that they were going through really hard times because it's different when you decide, when you take the decision to migrate for whatever reason you decide that and kind of plan that, and you have an idea of what are you gonna do when you arrive to the country, than when you have to just run right now to the bridge and ask for asylum because someone's trying to kill you back in your hometown. And these families are going through that and no one's paying attention to it. So that's the origin of this book that at the, at the end, um, it started with the stories of these people in Ciudad Juarez El Paso and I um, 
go, uh, uh, I return several times in the book to that area. But at the end, I, um, I expanded the, the, my area of interest and I uh, also speak a little bit about uh, people looking for asylum or refugees uh, coming from Central America, a couple of stories from other countries. Uh, but my main point is what's the criteria that the U.S. is following to receive someone in this country? This country of immigrants, beacon of light, land of the free, has a criteria to allow people to come here. You can have a, a murder threat in your country, and you can have evidence that you have been threatened and you have to flee your country because you are in risk to lose your life. And you can come to the border, present yourself in a port of entry in the US and say, I'm fearing for my life and I'm asking for asylum. With the same amount or kind of evidence right now while we are speaking, if you're coming from Venezuela, you will have among 70 and 75% of chances to get uh, the asylum, to be granted asylum. If you are coming from Honduras, you're gonna have between 12 and 14% chances to be allowed to stay under asylum. If you are coming from Mexico, you have 2% chances to be granted asylum. Why do you think is this? I mean, if you can prove that someone killed your brother and told you you're next, if you're coming from countries where uh, the government, it's been, um, let's say, not working well, but sometimes they're even in complicity with the criminal groups. What's the difference? And the difference I found is that we allow people to stay here, not on uh, social justice or human rights grounds, but on political grounds. If we are not friends with the Venezuelan regime, we receive those people, and with that, we are making a political statement that these people are living under a regime that uh, shouldn't be working like that. But if we receive people coming from Mexico that are denouncing that they have no uh, a democratic environment, a safe environment to keep living there, we are saying the same and we have trade agreements with Mexico, we have a lot of interests, so we cannot publicly say Mexico is not a democracy. So you have to cross, I'm sorry, you have to close the opportunity for those people to get asylum. And that's the criteria. So I explored that in the book. I um, use a few examples, you're familiar with them, the case of Cuba and, uh, and Haiti, Dominican Republic. Among the same time, you had people fleeing from those countries to the US and we know that there was an exception for one of the countries and not for the others. And well, basically that's the way we have been applying the international humanitarian regulations um, in the country. I'm gonna read um, uh, a, uh, a couple of pages of chapter six. And I chose this because uh, sometimes we see that people comes here asking for asylum, but we don't know what happens next. And besides applying political criteria to grant asylum, what we are doing in the US is keeping those people who come here asking for help to save their lives. We are keeping them in detention centers for a very long time, just while they have the chance to meet a judge to present their cases. It's people that has not committed a crime, it's people that was not detained, they delivered, they, not delivered, they presented themselves uh, in the port of entry and they say, I'm, uh, I fear for my life and I want to stay here. That's the case of uh, Jamil Jauhar. This is a man, uh, when I spoke to him, he was 44. He's originally from Mexico. He came undocumented to the US when he was 19. Here he met Claudia, his wife. She's from Mexico as well, and she came when she was 13. Uh, both of them are in their 40s right now. They met in Kansas, they got married, and they have a child. And when their children was five years old, uh, Jamil was arrested and deported. And Claudia took the decision to, to go to Mexico with him so her son can be with his parent. 
This was in 2011, and it was the worst moment to do that because it was when the criminal groups in Mexico were uh, very active. And they, Gamil got kidnapped once. They uh, had a business. They got threatened in the business. Uh, their son was, um, was bullied in the school. And at the end, they decided that they had to come back to the US. They presented themselves with all the evidence of the, um, of the crimes that they were victim during their, their stay in, in Mexico, and they asked for asylum. Uh, Claudia was detained for three weeks, and then she was released while she has uh, she hasn't had yet <laughs> the, the appointment with the judge, but meanwhile she can wait outside uh, the detention center, and their son is a citizen. But um, Jamil presented himself uh, one month later, and I'm gonna read a little bit of what happened when I visited him in uh, the Eloy Detention Center in Arizona. <clears throat> This is from chapter six, giving up freedom to save your life. The Eloy Detention Center is surrounded by three rows of electrified fence with barbed wire at the top. Other road leads to a parking lot some, some distance from the entrance. When I get out of the, of the car, I walk over the lot covering pebbles, feeling oddly vulnerable without the objects I usually carry with me. No one can enter the detention center with a handbag, cell phone, keys, cash, sunglasses, nor a belt, any jewelry, an overcoat, or wearing a low-cut top. I cannot refer to the detention center as a jail, prison, correctional facility, or penal institution. The people held there have not been put on trial or sentenced, so according to the law, they cannot be detained under prison-like conditions. The waiting room is an irregular polygon devoid of chairs, tables, any adornment, or comfort of any sort. The space can hold up to 30 people. A man hands out numbers to each visitor. Visiting hours begin at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's 8.40 and I'm number 52. The number of children in the room surprises me. They're dressed up as if they were going to a party. And they try to have fun in a space where there is no room for games. There's not even a chair. <laughs> They talk to each other in English, but the adults who accompany them speak in Spanish. A man comes over to me and asks for my help filling in the form. In the space marked as name of detainee, he writes his brother's name. Where it says name of visitor, he writes his own. In the space marked name of minor visitor, he writes the same name as the detainee. He's my nephew, my brother's son. He's four years old. He came to visit his dad. They have the same name. The minutes stick by and no new numbers are called. And since we are all stuck there waiting in the same room, we begin to talk to each other to pass the time. Um, Janet, who's, who is number 59, just got in a few hours from Dallas, along with her 13-year-old daughter. And because just the day before they got a phone call, Janet's mother, who had crossed the border undocumented in Tijuana, was detained, taken into custody, and transferred to Eloy. She was detained in Tijuana, and she was transferred to this detention center in Arizona. So family from San Diego had to travel to Arizona to be able to uh, get in touch with her. This was the easy, the easy part, the easy way, because sometimes people are detained in Tijuana or San Diego in this coast, and they get transferred to Texas. So family or relatives who want to help the person who is attained have to travel that distance and, of course, spend an amount of money just to keep up on the process. Um, Janet does not speak English. By law, she is supposed to be assigned an interpreter, but she doesn't dare to ask for one. So she brought her daughter with her to translate and to help her to use a computer because soon she was told she would need to find a lawyer. There's another man, Juan Carlos, who left San Diego at three in the morning to get to Eloy by eight and uh, who has come to see his niece. We brought her so she could see her mother, he says, glancing downward. 
I look down and I see a little girl with jet black hair wearing a white and blue dress smiling up at me. She's seven years old. She's my niece's daughter. He tells me that his niece has been in detention for five months. Every year, the Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, this was the name of uh, the largest uh, company that manages prisons and detention centers in, in the US. And uh, two weeks before uh, Donald Trump took office, they changed their name to CoreCivic. So, well, in the book it's stated as Corrections Corporation of America. I'm gonna refer to them as CoreCivic in the future. Uh, well, every year this company receives $1.7 billion in contracts for operating prisons and detention centers. And still, in Eloy, they charge you for everything. You're not allowed to enter the visiting area with any cash, but there are vending machines. At the entrance, a visitor can purchase a card that costs $5, just the card. If you want to use it, you have to add credit on it. Um, when Carlos asked me to help him to get one, because the day before his niece called him and asked him to bring money so he could, uh, he could buy a, a burrito for her from one of those vending machines. Can you imagine why they must be eating in here that would make you want one of those disgusting burritos? He asked rhetorically. Three hours later, after passing through a metal detector, the visitors are shown into another waiting room. There, an employee shouts out the names of the detainees and then through two more doors, six since the entrance, you get to the visiting room. Looking around the, the shoebox shapes room, I spot Jamil sitting toward the back. His khaki uniform makes him look even thinner. His hair is cut close to his scalp and brings out his shining eyes like two blackberries. In Spanish, I say this como capulines. I don't know if someone knows what a capulines, but that's the kind of eyes that he has. Um, we have never met, but when I catch his eye, he, we recognize each other in this room with children, with children wrapped around their father's necks, a young woman holding her boyfriend close, and three young men who take turns kissing their little cousin on the cheek. People who greet each other only with their eyes are the exception. Jamil stands up and smiles at me, and we sit down and get ready to talk. A woman in uniform delivers an ultimatum, 50 minutes. Jamil invites me to sit down at one of the tables. He warns me that we cannot sit on the, net, ne, on the same side of the table. We have to sit across from each other. Jamil tell me, tells me bits and pieces about his life, and at times he seems relaxed, but at some moments he seems to be trying to look strong. He has lost weight since he's, be, he's been here, but he says he's in excellent physical condition. He tells me what a normal day there is like. He gets up, plays soccer, takes a shower, plays some chess or dominoes. Sometimes he helps out in the library. Sometimes he helps in the kitchen. That routine only changes if you get punished. In that case, a detainee is taken to the hall, a solitary confinement cell with no windows where they are only taken out in, in handcuffs for a half hour per day. Once, he tells me, another detainee tried to start a fight with him, and Jamil got blamed for it. He was in the hole for 15 days. But it wasn't so bad. It's dark and it gets really cold, but you don't have to see anybody there, he told me. I'm the first visitor Jamil has had in 16 months since shortly after he arrived at the Immigration Detention Center in Liloy. His wife and son came to visit him a week after he was uh, first detained here, but because they live so far away in Kansas and don't have much money, they haven't been able to come back. So there are no kids clinging to his neck, no hugs, no kisses on the cheek, no impatiently looking forward to visiting day on Saturday for Jamil. In spite of it all, this 44-year-old man originally from Durango, Mexico, is locked up here of his own free will. What would make somebody choose to spend over a year in a shared prison cell in the United States rather than live in freedom in Mexico? Hope, he answers quickly, so I can give a better life to my family, to my son, or just a life. Back there, something could happen at any moment. On January 26, 2012, Jamil was kidnapped by municipal 
police officers in Torreón, the city where he lived. He paid a ransom, lost his business, and later survived an attack from an armed assailant. His son was beaten up, and a year later, Jamila and his wife Claudia came to a decision. They had to leave the country. They left behind the little they still had. Claudia went first, and a few weeks later, Jamil followed, crossing the border and separating Mexico and the United States, and turning himself in to immigration authorities at the gate in Nogales, where he presented an application for asylum. That was 2013. Uh, I have um, one more paragraph, but I just want to tell you that I'm still in touch with this family, and they have moved the, um, the date for the appointment to present their cases um, to the judge three times. By now, the next um, <clears throat> available appointment to see a judge is in 2020. Um, the good thing might be that they were allowed to wait uh, outside the detention center, but they have no status in the country. They're living in this limbo. And if they present the case to the judge and the judge denies the asylum, they would be immediately deported. Five sets of locked doors and a tall fence separate Jamil from life on the outside. There are four locked doors between the visiting room and his cell block. Even so, he says he's prepared to stay there for as long as it takes. You get used to everything once you're here, he says. You learn to see things in a different way, to be more tolerant with people, to be patient. He flashes a smile. His face changes totally when he smiles. His eyes shine even brighter and the lines that form around his eyes give him a warm, serene expression. Yamin has the peaceful look of someone who knows the wait will be worth it. Uh, when I visited Jamil, uh, he had spent one year and a half there. He was released after 26 months. And for every day, uh, people like, like Yamil spend in that detention center, the company that manages the detention center earns between uh, $180 and $245 per detainee per day. And guess who's paying for that? We are. That's, there's a budget that is approved uh, every year in the Senate that uh, is um, earmarked for these companies, GEO and CoreCivic. And um, well, that's the way we are operating, receiving, opening our, our arms to people who are uh, looking for asylum, looking to save their lives uh, in this country. I decided that um, I wanted to, to, you know, to choose, and, and here are people who have written books, to choose the right title for your book. It's tricky because you have to feel comfortable with that because you wrote the book, but also your publisher has to feel comfortable and there's also the marketing part that they need to sell the book. So it has to be something attractive and it can get a little conflict. But uh, when my publisher suggested we build a wall, I think the three parts <laughs> agree that this was a good title for the book because all you know the, the talk about uh, the wall that will not be ever built in the world was on the media. And it looks like people really think that um, by having no wall, this country is receiving people, that people are coming here to live in pe to live in peace, and that we are still that welcoming country that uh, we were thought uh, in the school and in political speeches. We have already built a wall uh, based on um, bureaucratic processes in political and economic criteria, and of course, in uh, election, election cycles. If you are having an election upcoming, like we have now, uh, it's um, very likely that you will hear about immigration, immigrants as a threat, and invasion and crime coming from the southern border. You know, not the northern, but the southern border. <laughs> So, um, well, I think this is a, a good moment. <laughs> I was mentioning before that uh, the White House is determined to promote my book because every day they say something that is like, oh, I wrote about it, I wrote about it, look, look at the book. But um, to me, this is, 
this is a way to add a little piece of information to a conversation that I think we should have, we all should have right now. What's the kind of country that we want to build, to build, not the country that we have, but the country that we are building? Because with every decision that we are making in immigration policies, in uh, social policies, in social services legislation, we are building a new country. And I don't know if we feel comfortable uh, being these people who detains someone trying to save their life for more than two years so a big company can earn some money. Um, the, the midterms are approaching and sometimes when I speak in California, uh, I feel that I'm preaching to the core because it's very likely that this blue state will uh, stay blue for a while. But I always mention uh, it's important to understand what is happening, what's going on. Not only to say that we have this uh, liberal or progressive way to understand politics and the country, but to understand what is happening in order to be able to explain that to other people. Uh, someone yesterday after the situation with the immigrant caravan crossing through Mexico asked me, what can we do to help to change? And this response, and people don't like to hear this because it, they expect something like, let's do a campaign, fundraising. Talk to another person. If you are well informed and you share this information with another person, and it, that person is in another state, in a red state, that's even better, <laughs> share that information, and that person will decide. Maybe after you say, you know, there's a company earning money, there's a government doing this, that person will say, okay, but still I want to work. Okay, you did your part, giving information. But if you can uh, share your thoughts and this information with other people, and for some reason that gives them a different light, we will be the double in a very short time, just by talking to another person, every one of us. Um, so I'm gonna leave it here. Um, I want to hear from you because I've talked a lot. So I don't know if you have comments, questions, concerns. It's between 180 something and 245. It depends on the on the company, on the detention center, and they earn mon, more uh, with children than with, uh, of course, uh, it's more expensive to have facilities for children than with uh, adults. But um, in the case of children, uh, they're supposed not to be literally in, in detention. That's, that's a different uh, criteria. But those are the numbers. And the interesting thing is that, I mean, the, the detention centers have this budget to operate. They present an estimate budget, the Senate approves it, and they got their money. But then, once you are there, and that story is also in the book, um, they offer you, if you are a detainee, they offer you to work as a recreative way to spend the day. So uh, you can either uh, clean the kitchen or clean the restrooms or clean the bedrooms. And if you allow to be part of this program, which is four uh, to six hours a day, if you agree, this is voluntary, they will pay you a dollar per day. So, and this is, uh, I, I asked why this was happening and there's a memo, a legal memo in the Department of Homeland Security presenting this proposal for people to uh, have this recreative activity while in, in prison. Um, the, the irony here is that some of those people were taken there because they were arrested after um, they got them working with no papers in the US. Then they take them to the detention center and they, they can work for one dollar a day. Uh, so they can buy a burrito after, you know, five days. But um, yes, that's, that's the thing. You can Google CoreCivic or GEO. Those are the largest companies that are working on that. And it's, uh, and it's also very interesting that um, the, uh, both of the companies were having 
a rough time at the end of the Obama administration because, uh, as you know, both immigration numbers and detention numbers were lower by, by the end of the Obama administration. So um, the contracts that these companies had were revised and they were reconsidered if they were going to have the contracts again or not. But during his campaign, Donald Trump assured that uh, the, contracts, the contracts will be renewed because uh, we needed to expand our detention centers in the country since he was, he was going to uh, detain a lot of people. And then if you look at um, oh, what's opensecrets.org, which is a, an organization that follows the money, the election money, you can find that both of these companies made donations to the Republican Party and the Trump campaign in 2016. So follow the money, and it, it is there. Okay, um, particularly with this book, I, uh, I had a conflict after the first year reporting because the stories are very, very hard. And people start talking to you, and these are people who flee. Many of them don't speak English, so maybe he fled. I, I started the book with the story of a family. They were uh, 10 siblings and they start killing one by one. And when I talked to them, there were four of them alive and the mother in El Paso. Can you imagine the kind of trauma that you have and you have no one to talk about it and you don't speak English? So once you start talking to them, they talk and talk and talk and tell you some details that you really don't want to know. I have one of the interviews and it lasts five hours. And I, I mean, I was not even able to, to transcript all of the interview because it was, it was crazy. Um, when I started working for La Opinion, uh, I worked there for seven years. La Opinion is the largest Spanish language newspaper in the country. Uh, I, I felt that you, know, you have to take care of yourself when you're covering these stories. Pilar is here. Uh, but then you had a newsroom and you were able to go back to your colleagues and talk about the story. And that used to help a lot, uh, especially with Pilar. I recall that once uh, we were talking about when the Venezuelans were demonstrating, do you remember? Uh, and we had people there from Cuba, from Puerto Rico, from El Salvador. So we were able to share what we were feeling and to learn a little bit more in order to tell the story in a fair way. But in the past 10 years, we have had a crisis in media and we have, we don't have newsrooms anymore, actually. You go to, you report, go to a Starbucks, send your article, and you don't have this kind of um, environment that allows you to, to talk and kind of heal, to share. So when I started working on this, I was a freelancer. I, I quit La Opinion in 2011. And I realized that I was not talking to anyone about this. So I was just <laughs> holding everything. So I had to stop uh, one year. And then I retook the, the book. I didn't want to. But I felt uh, that I had the responsibility to do it because these people put their lives in my, not in my hands, but in, in my recorder. <laughs> and I felt that it was fair to publish the story. And well, I don't regret it because at this moment, I mean, for, for some reason I didn't publish before, and at this moment it's like, oh my God, all of, all of that is in the book. But it took me three years to report all of these cases, and now we are seeing all of these cases in three weeks. I mean, this has become crazy. In the previous administration, how long was the process for this new All of the cases uh, that I mentioned here, are in the previous administration. The book was finished uh, in November 2016, and then Trump won. So my publisher gave me the thing back, so I, uh, I had to add certain things. I changed, uh, I had a couple of, of texts, uh, but all of the cases were like that during the Obama administration. I, I think that's important because some people 
not only outside the country, which would be understandable, but inside the country as well, think that all of this started with Trump, that Trump has changed things. Trump has not changed anything because he, because he can't. He has tried, and either the, the Supreme Court or the other courts or the Congress has stopped him. He was not able to uh, take back Obamacare because the Congress did not allow it. The Congress did not uh, approve um, either budget for the wall or budget for uh, hiring new border patrol agents. So, um, and well, of course, other thing, the Muslim ban, taking, uh, taking away DACA, taking away the TPS, all of that. I mean, I think n never in the recent history of, of, of this country we have had this kind of test for the checks and balances system. And so far, I think we are passing because the courts and the Congress have been, you know, an, um, a way to, to keep the White House uh, in line in certain topics. I don't know if that's going to happen after November, but that's, a, that's the situation um, right now. So uh, what I always say is Trump is using a system that was already there, that has been there for a very long time. And the difference is that he's using the system in a cruel way. He has shown cruelty while using the system. But the system was already there. The tools were there, and he is using them in a very nasty way. But if Trump leaves, I mean, he will leave, but um, we don't, we don't, <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> he will leave uh, in, in two more or in six more years, <laughs> but he will leave. And when that happens, the system will be there if we don't change it. That's, that's what I'm trying to point to uh, with some parts of the book that we really need to understand that this is the way we built the immigration system. It's not that we have a broken immigration system. It, it was born broke, and I think it was in purpose, and I think that's because it serves the political and the economic um, interests in the country. It was, I have, it's nine, I don't have clear the presidents, but it's in, at the end of the 90s. So who was president? Clinton. Clinton. It started, well, yes, it started with Clinton. And then, uh, but, you know, the, the largest contracts were, uh, were renewed by the Obama administration. And at some point, there was full house in all of the detention centers during the Obama administration. And it's understandable because there are more detention centers. I'm, I'm sorry. There are the same detention centers now because we don't have budget approved for new detention centers, but we have more detainees. And that's what, why we are seeing the tents. The other thing is that we have more detainees, but they, they are not staying that long. They are releasing them because they don't have the facilities to hold them. So what we are seeing is that Donald Trump has not done uh, the amount of deportations that Obama did, not at all. But he has uh, increased the detentions, and he has increased the detentions um, people who are already living in the country, not people who are trying to cross. That's the number that has increased, and I think that's um, strategy to, to intimidate the communities, to send a message. He, he, was, he has not been able to present something as a result for his constituency, constituency, the reason that I mentioned before. So this operating in uh, communities, arresting people who have lived there for a long time, it's a way you know, to just put that um, fear and that message out there. And well, we'll see what happens in November. I don't think, I don't think the budget, I don't think we have extra budget for the detention centers because that has to be approved in the budget, in the annual budget. And they had to have a special uh, measure approved in order to have more money. So. I have not, I mean, you, you mean in these recent months, right? Yeah, because if, if during the Obama administration there were low number of detainees, probably these companies were making less money. 
Oh, okay. There's here's the thing, and also it's explained here. When they um, had this arrangement with the government, the government said, I I don't remember what's the name, but it's some kind of um, guarantee that they will earn at least certain amount of money. So the budget approved for those detention centers is around, I don't recall the exact number, but it's here, around 90% of capacity. What they would earn if the detention centers are at 90% of their capacity, that's the money they receive. Either they, they have it or not, that doesn't matter. But when you see that they are detaining and, and detaining, it's because they have to maintain those rates in order to keep the budget for the next year. Uh, that's why Obama was considering to cut it, because we had yeah, empty yeah. detention, not empty, but health empty detention centers, and we were still spending the money. Yeah, no, that, I mean, they thought about it. <laughs> what you're saying in your book, when you're talking about Obama, President Trump, and now Trump, so his administration delivers a democratic vote. Yes, sir. Yes, and, and you are right. I don't think this has anything to do with political parties. Democrats and Republicans, I mean, it's the system. And if you are a politician, you are part of that system and you are benefiting of this in one way or the other. Um, I think the, the, um, the only way to start looking for a, an alternative for immigration is through the Congress. We need to change um, to change the way we uh, we receive immigrants, we treat immigrants, and we incorporate them to our communities. And to me, this is my personal opinion, an immigration reform is, is, we, is, is not something that we graciously are gonna give to those immigrants, but it's something that we really need. After my years covering immigration, I truly believe that immigration is not a problem. It's not only not a problem, but the solution for many things in this country. We can see that in the fields. We can see that in certain companies. If you see um, the generation of dreamers, these undocumented uh, youth that arrived in the country when they were very little and now are in their 20s or their 30s, and despite all uh, obstacles, they were able to graduate, they are working, they are creating companies, they're bilingual, they're bicultural, they're binational. I mean, we have an asset there, and we have invested a lot in them because they went to school here, so, you know, our taxes paid for that. I don't want those kids back in Mexico or El Salvador or wherever. I want them here because we already spend money on them. So I think this has uh, definitely to pass uh, through the Congress. I think an immigration reform will do it, but also we need to change the way uh, and the rules that we are applying in the border. Because if we have an immigration reform, but tomorrow we still have people coming inside a trunk to the country, we are just repeating the pattern. We, we want to, to have the human rights of immigrants respected, but that doesn't mean that we want undocumented immigration. I mean, I don't think anyone wants or agrees that it's nice for someone to cross the border with no documents and living here that way. So we need to adjust both parts. Uh, we need to adjust the legal part, and that's the Congress that has to take care of that. But we also have to change the way the border is working, the rules, the whole uh, homeland security system, because we have been seeing immigration as a political and economic issue instead of a human rights and social justice issue, and that has been our problem. Talk to your Congress member. Oh, God. 
Yes. And, and you know uh, uh, that that thing that you mentioned, I've um, I've been hearing and reading, um, coming from my friends in Mexico. There's a feeling in Mexico that this was well, it, it's horrible. The comments there are horrible, horrible. All of those who were. Uh, infuriated by the way the American government were separating children from their parents, now don't want any of those guys across the Mexican border. So it's like, okay, your morals are kind of uh, tricky. But, um, but also, I, I was, uh, what you just mentioned, there are some people saying, you know, this was paid by Trump, so they can create this scene to, uh, to provoke that people, that Republicans, that conservatives, um, go to vote in November. I was like, I don't know, but it, everybody's kind of, you know, it's, it's like, can it be? I mean, I'm Mexican, I know anything can be, but I mean, <laughs> that's why, don't trust me on that. <laughs> Really? Yes. create a mess, at least you have to invest to fix it if you don't want those people here. But uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I'm convinced that uh, having 11 million people working here, uh, it's, it, re it represents a benefit for someone. And of course, it's not us. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be happening. Sorry. <laughs> I'll have a reader. <laughs> and, and that's why I also uh, think that we have to talk more to other people, to people who think different, not only on Facebook, <laughs> but in person. I mean, just pick one person that you know thinks different or lacks information, because in my experience, of course, there are people that are racist and anti-immigrant, and you can, you can say anything. I mean, they're the way they are. But most people don't have much information 
and they are making their minds just in certain you know, uh, narrative that we have in the media. Once you explain to them, for example, that when they say, get in the line, and you explain that Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico don't have a program of um, visa lottery like the other countries. I mean, they say, why don't they go to the consulate and apply for a, for a visa? There's no program like that. They cannot do that. The United States do not uh, allow them to apply for that program. You tell them, get in the line, there's no line for them. They, there's really no line. Oh, do you mean that they cannot go to the, no, they can't. Well, I blame Obama for that. <laughs> the, the reason is that that visa lottery was created uh, in order to maintain the, the melting pot principle, the diversity of the country. So uh, every year, a certain amount of people from different areas can come to live here so we can maintain our diversity. In the case of these countries that I mentioned, we are a lot here, so we do not need a special program to keep numbers up because they are already very high. Well, it would be great if that criteria was cultural, because the melting pot means that. You bring your culture, and you learn about ours, and we create something new out of the best of them. But uh, for asylum, the criteria is purely political, and economic, and sometimes electoral. So, I mean, it's, it's the opposite, completely the opposite. Oh, yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> Oh, thank you. And I'm very excited to hear your conversation. I'm a Democrat, long-time Democrat, worked for the Kennedy County for years. I was a nominee for Congress in Orange County against Dan Warbuck. The first campaign, we spent a quarter million dollars, took us out. The second campaign, they wanted me to run. The men in the black suits came in, offered me two and a half million dollars to run a second time. I said, who are these? Yes. Tribush. You know, uh, <clears throat> and of course, this um, 
this is related to me as well, but uh, the other part is, we, is that we have to start um, acknowledging the journalism that are uh, following the money, that are doing the stories, that are um, shedding light, light on this, because uh, this happens in many countries, but I found, I've, I've lived in the US for 15 years, and I found that here, mainstream is everything. <laughs> If New York Times say that, if Washington Post say that, then it happened. Um, I work for a, what they call ethnic media here in Los Angeles for seven years, and we were, most of us were immigrants ourselves, and we were working very close to the immigrant communities, to the um, minorities, and we knew about uh, the things, and we wrote about it, and no mainstream media would take those stories to work more on those, even when they had the resources to do it. Because, you know, you are not in that uh, circle. But that was 15 years ago. Now we have independent media. We have podcasts. We have um, digital media that are being created not uh, by receiving money from Target or Volkswagen or Chrysler, but by receiving money from foundations or crowdfunding from the readers. I think that's the solution. Because if you are in Congress and you have a, spoke, uh, a spokesperson, that person can go to the mainstream media as usual. But if you have an independent media and you do not depend economically for them, uh, from them, then you have the chance to keep talking. But we have to understand that we need to pay for the media that we deserve. We need to pay for the journalism that we deserve. Just like you pay for your beer and your cigarettes, $5 a month for a website that are working in trying to uh, tell these kind of stories. $5 a month, Pilar just opened a, a podcast, listen to it. She has a lot of experience in politics and immigration. How much do you need for each person monthly? Thousand people, five dollars a month? Would that make it? You know, how much do you spend in beer every month? So we have to make ourselves responsible for the kind of information that we want, and we have to pay for what we deserve. If you don't pay for information, you get Fox News. Are we done? Okay. One last question over there. I know. It does. When I really pay attention and I really more, I really take it inside and out, you get sad, you get depressed. Life is shitty enough. That's true. You have to create a combo. You know, the media and the beer. Oh my God. So you're not buying the book, right? <laughs> you're not buying the book because no, no, this no, is no, going to no. make you really sad. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. You mentioned uh, some people say, um, oh, why don't these people just get in line and all that stuff? And you say there's no real system for them to get in line, too. But there's a lottery system that's divided up amongst different countries all over the world. How, so does the, how do people get in that lottery system? They go to the, as, as far as I understand, they go to the consulate and they, I don't know, get a number, a form, or whatever thing, and they have a cap for each year and they, they literally do a lottery. And but if you are picked. Last three years, they minimize. Yes, yes. Like, 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 like. But, uh, but still, I mean, the numbers are meaningless. No, no, it's not, I mean, it's just to keep the forms and to still be able to call ourselves the melting pot. But if you see the diversity numbers in the United States, because we think that, oh, we are so diverse. Well, that's not true. Uh, you know, we have Latinos and we have Mexicans in a very high rate, and then other people come. Uh, if you see Canada, for example, they have a lot more diversity than the United States. There are a few countries that have received people from other countries in recent years, and they are very diverse right now. We are not even that diverse. And I mean, I'm talking about ethnicity and race and 
country of origin, let's not think about religion or ideology. Are we done? No, thank you guys for coming in a Saturday. Thank you. <laughs>